In our final message of our series uh, leading up today, Pentecost Sunday, you guys are all well aware of that by now, I think, celebrating the gift of the Holy Spirit, which makes and made possible and will continue to make possible, right, this, 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 this church, this, this thing. Um, Luke tells us about this event in, our, in, in his gospel, Luke chapter 24, verse 49, just kind of bring you up to speed on Pentecost. I'm going to sp- send you what my father has promised, but stay in the city until you've been clothed with power from on high. And then the promise is delivered, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, when the day of Pentecost came. And again, just a little background, Hebrew, the word is Shavuot, uh, Greek Septuagint, which is what we translate from uh, Pentecost, 50, Greek for 50, you think five, penta, uh, 50. Um, one week, a week of weeks plus one day. Um, it was a harvest festival celebrated 50 days after the first day of Passover, so that's kind of where we get deal. And it evolved to include celebration of the giving of the Ten Commandments, right? Um, at Mount Sinai, the rabbis figured eventually on down the road that it occurred probably about 50 days after the angel of death had passed over the Israelites in, in Egypt, um, by putting their, you know, those who put their faith in the blood of the lamb. Now, keep in mind that the, the law was written on stone tablets, right? And, and almost in the back of your mind, you think of hearts of stone. And I, I'm not sure if there's that connection, but it always kind of comes into my mind as I think about that compared to Pentecost. So we got the, the law written on stone tablets. And then uh, continue, when the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place, suddenly a sound, like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. So we have a sound. Then they saw, so we got a sight, seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak. So we got a sound, we got a sight, and we got voices all from heaven, right? And they began to speak to each other in other tongues as the Spirit enabled him them. Again, just as a supernatural sight, sound, and voices gave us Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments, like a repeat of it. But this time there's not a single voice, there's voices. I don't know if you caught that, voices this time. It's not a single, it's, it's, it's many. It's, it's an incredible kind of a little, little clue there what's going on. Um, written a new covenant on the hearts with an S, on the minds with an S of believers um, with an S. It was the Pentecost experience. And we learned through Stephen's testimony, right, that through the law and the um, temple, right, those were once written and controlled, you know, written on stone tablets, controlled by the religious authorities of Jerusalem, and, and the temple and the law was kind of under their control. Um, and, and, and Stephen taught that the temple and, and the Word of God doesn't reside now in Jerusalem. It's no longer controlled by the people in Jerusalem, right? It's written on our hearts, so it's in the, the hearts and minds of, of believers, the, the church, right? It's no longer centralized. It's been decentralized. Um, the curse of Babel was reversed, the curse, excuse me, the blessing of Pentecost was a dramatic reversal of the curse of Babel. At Babel, human languages were confer, con, confused and the nation scattered. But in Jerusalem on Pentecost, right, all the language barrier was supernaturally done away with as a sign that from here on out, right, it wouldn't just be the Jewish people as the special chosen people of God, but from here on out, all peoples, all the nations would gather under the name of Christ. At Babel, earth proudly tried to ascend to heaven, whereas in Jerusalem, on Pentecost Sunday, heaven humbly descended to earth. But with this new movement, immediate questions, boom, you, you, know, you knew that, right? Anytime something new, everyone's going to start asking, well, how does this compare to the old? Is it better? Is it worse? I mean, what are, what are the rules of this new movement? What are the new member expectations, right? The do's and don'ts. In, in rabbinic language, it's um, what, what would be the yoke or the burden 
of this new movement. See, every rabbi who had a movement, who had a following, they had a, what was called a yoke or a burden. It was their list of membership expectations, right? So this new movement, the question immediately, well, do all the rules, do all the rules get dumped, right? What, what, what is, what's it going to be, right? Having broken free from the temple and the law and all of that with all their demands over every single aspect of your life, every moment of your life, these new Christians, are they got to be asking, so how free are we, right? I mean, our whole day was consumed with making sure that we followed the, the Mosaic law. And now, how, how much of it? How much do we do? Where do we stand now? Uh, and then this was a huge, huge deal because in the ancient Jewish world, your practices, what you did saved you. Right? The ritual practices, the cultic practices of the Jewish people, the way they did them, the way God commanded them to do them, and the way they therefore did them, they were saved through that. And now Paul was saying you're saved by faith, not by the law. Right? So they're, 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 they're asking, and they're not asking in terms of, right, should we sin more, right? Because this came out in the New Testament. This is an argument that eventually comes up. Can we sin more because then God's grace could abound more? That's not really what, what we're talking about here. Nor are we talking about this rather, I, I think, a more modern idea of once saved, always saved, right? Are, are we good to go now? We don't got to do anything. We can just live like we want to. Anything goes. So it's not really, we're, looking, we're not looking at those two aspects of rules and things like that, but more in terms of will this new thing have any membership, membership expectations, any list of rules at all, right? I mean, we, we see up there, we in our church, we, we, have, we have, you know, we carry our cross, we attend church, we read our Bibles, we pray, we, we serve on it, we wash each other's feet. I mean, you know, you see in the pictures, we, we, we do a lot of practice, we do a lot of things, and these kind of identify us as Christians. Um, and again, so in Acts chapter 15, we find the early church facing pretty much the same set of questions that people today are asking, right? It didn't go away. People are still asking as the church, you know, divides and comes back together and does what they do. Every new denomination, everyone's asking, well, why is, how is this one different than this one? How is this one an improvement? What did they change from where they, because everybody breaks off from somebody, right? Everybody breaks off, splinters off from somebody in the church world. And again, every single step, somebody's asking, well, what do they do different than them? Right? They seem to believe about the same thing, but they've split up over practices, right? How do they express what they believe? Um, so again, same, same question that a little Jewish boy would ask, uh, same question that the modern church asks. Are there any behavioral expectations or changes in behavior are expected? Are we supposed to get better? Are we supposed to get stronger? What are we supposed to get? Um, are we defined by our practices? And if so, what are those practices? Do we ask for abstinence from anything or the sacrifice of personal rights or property? People will ask us to this day. They'll get up, they'll look at our church, they'll get on our website, and these are the questions that they're wondering about. They know we believe in Jesus because <laughs> we've got a cross out front. There's certain things that they go, yeah, well, that's a given, but this other stuff, I will not go to a church that does this. I will not attend a church that does that, but I need a church that does this, and I'll only go to a church that does that right? Our practices, what we do, not what we believe, craziest thing, but what we do, what we do, it, it, it matters so, so much. And again, in our individualistic world, right? Pick your own truth, plain old self-centeredness, right? Does a church have the right to ask, demand, 
behavioral expectations. Even in this modern age of, right, everybody's truth is your own. So many groups, they champion their own causes, their own ethics, their own politics, their own practices, and don't think for a moment that they don't ask for a lot. They do. They ask for a lot. And we willingly give everything to these groups. So where does the church stand? Right? Is it something different that we don't have to give everything to? Where the other aspects of our life, the other institutions of our life ask for everything, but the church has backed off from that? Kind of a strange thing. And for those of you this year decided that nobody's going to tell me how to worship, I want you to keep something in mind. We are a part of what we would call a boundaried community. Both the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have always had rules. We've always had practices. We've always had boundaries. Don't do this. Make sure you do that. In the Old Testament, right, Ten Commandments, Levitical law, the prophets would come in and said, you know, God told you to do this and God told you not to do that. And well, now you didn't do it. So, or you did it. And I'm going to bless you. Right? There was behavior. And in the New Testament, of course, you know, Jesus said, you've heard it said, but I say, and he would rewrite and revise these ancient laws. But he didn't do away with them. He just revised them. There were still boundaries. Still, and then you read all of Paul's letters, right, just beginning to end, lots of instructions on how to treat your wife, how to treat your kids, how not to treat your wife, how not to treat your kids, how to treat your neighbors, right, how to be good church people. Boundaries. We are and have always been a people with boundaries and practices. And in Acts chapter 15, the new movement deals with these very, very questions. Now, again, for several years now, we're at a point now in chapter 14, chapter 15. Some years have gone by since Cornelius. Some scholars think as many as 10 years, right? So Paul's been growing in his faith. He's been in Antioch. He's, uh, some writers say that he took a three-year trip into the desert to pull his head together and realize what he was now being called to do. But years have gone by, right? Um, in Acts chapter 15... Um, the, 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 the new believers, they're being brought in by baptism. They're brought into the table fellowship, right? That was a big, big deal, big, huge, huge, huge deal. Um, if you think about the Jewish cleanliness laws, unclean and unclean, clean and clean, unclean, they all had a end in mind, and that was to have table fellowship together. All the kosher laws, all the food laws, you notice they're all about food so that we could have table fellowship together. That was like... The pinnacle of cleanliness is that we sit down and have fellowship together. We break bread together. Um, both then and now, right? You see it in the news. I think the Catholic Church is different. Bishops are saying, hey, if this president or this person doesn't do this or they do that, we're not going to invite them to the table fellowship. They can't have communion. I mean, this is, this is huge in the news. So this is like not 3,000 years old, 2,000 years old. This is today. Right? What are, what are the expectations? If you want to be a good Catholic, if you want to be a good Protestant, you want to be a good Nazarene, you want to be a good Baptist, I mean, we all got rules. That's a secret. We all got rules. Secret's out. All right, good. Um, so beginning in chapter 10 with Cornelius, a little, little, real quick recap here. Uh, chapter 10, Cornelius, the first Gentile. Chapter 11, the city of Antioch uh, grows rapidly, and at the same time, Jerusalem has a famine. Uh, Barnabas... And Saul, or excuse me, Barnabas and Paul, Saul, whichever, are sent up with gifts from Antioch to help the, 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 the famine in, in Judea. Um, chapter 12, Peter escapes from prison. Chapters 13 and 14 is that first missionary journey of Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. We know John Mark is Mark, right? John Mark, kid name, I guess. Um, but here's the deal. Only one centurion in one city. Jerusalem leaders were assured, right, that God himself was in on this, right, kind of in a general kind of way. 
general kind of way. It was generally assumed that these new converts would accept Jesus Christ as their Savior, then be absorbed into Jerusalem, or excuse me, absorbed into Israel by circumcision and by observing the law. So they could be bona fide members of the covenanted community of God, right? Read Israel. That was the pinnacle. That idea hadn't dropped just with this new movement. The pinnacle of existence was to be a part of the chosen people of God, Israel. That, that was it. That didn't go away. But the one man, and the one, sick, one, one man and one city quickly spread to a whole bunch of people and a whole bunch of cities and a whole bunch of nations. That bothered the Jewish officials, right? Gentiles who had, had converted to Judaism, that was all good and fine. But now people were finding Christ, being baptized into table fellowship under their own nation. They didn't even give a nod to Israel, right? Not even a nod. They were finding Christ in their own nation, in their own language, never having touched the Holy Land. And the Jerusalem officials were like, whoa, 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 time out, right? We, we were okay with this in a general sense, but now slow down, right? The trickle had become a flood. And again, the question is, what rules are we going to make them follow, right? Because we got tons of them. Are we going to let them go? Are we going to just let them go willy-nilly? <laughs> are we going to straddle them, hang some albatrosses around their neck? That, that's like a phrase that they actually use, um, doesn't mean anything anymore to be a member of the covenanted community of God. And if it does, what does it mean anymore? With all these new Christians, doesn't mean anything in order anymore to be a member of the nation of Israel, God's chosen special people. Did that all go out the window? Another thing in entirely for folks to retain their own national identity. I mean, that was just blowing their mind. So again, in Acts chapter 15, verses 1 four through 4, we have the issue spelled out. Let's start. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Certain people, these certain people, these were Judaizers. Now again, I, I can't state this strongly enough. They were not opposed to the Gentiles being saved. They were not Jews who hated the new Christians. They were Jews who had become Christians but were still tightly tied to their Jewish cultural, heritage, faith, traditions. You read in, in the Acts, Paul and the apostles, they, they always went to prayer at, the, at the, the appointed time. They didn't stop being Jews, right? They still participated in all of the rituals and all, all of the things. Um, so certain people, right, they came down. Now, if you look at a map, Jerusalem is south of Antioch. So how do you go down to Antioch? A uh, little background information in the Bible, Jerusalem is always up to Jerusalem. I don't care where you're coming from, right? You're going to go up to, if you are in an airplane, you go up to Jerusalem because it's on a hill and that's just the phraseology. You go up to Jerusalem and you go down from Jerusalem to anywhere. It has nothing to do with north and south. Just, just kind of those of you who are looking at it going, ah, man, they're horrible cartographers, huh? Doug, man, oh man, shoot. Um, so uh, they'd come down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. Right? Again, this was the circumcision party of believers. They were believers. Don't let that kind of slip out of your head. They were believers. They believed in Jesus Christ. They loved Jesus. They loved all that. But in other words, what is it, does it still mean something regardless of uh, to be a member of the covenant community of God. Does it still mean something, regardless of you being a believer or not? Right? But Paul was quick to see the implications. Verse 2, this brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. Right? This was a big deal. Don't, don't let this slide. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem and see the apostles and the elders about this question. Right? And 
they did on the way what they couldn't help but doing. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted, and this news made all the believers very, very happy. So they arrive in Jerusalem. Verse 4, when they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders to whom they reported everything God had done to them, and there was general rejoicing. So all the pleasantries, you know, all of that is over. Everybody's shaking hands, and they've all sat down at the table. All right, now let's, let's talk about what brought us here. Let's, everybody take a deep breath. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, now don't be confused. These were Jewish people who had converted to Christ. But different places in the Bible, they call it the Pharisaic party. They call it the circumcision party, Judaizers. They, they call it different things. Again, Jews who had become Christians. They didn't hate the Christians. They, okay, all right, make that clear. The Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. Again, this might have been the same group in Antioch. Uh, some of them arrived back. Some of them are already in Jerusalem. Again, they weren't opposed to the Gentile mission. They were just adamant that they had to go through Judaism first. They had to become a part of the chosen people of God. I mean, the Jewish people couldn't conceive of being accepted by God and not being a part of his chosen, acceptable people. They just, they, they just couldn't conceive of this, right? They, had, they, they would be baptized in the name of Jesus, but they also had to be circumcised and follow the law. Otherwise, they weren't saved. Jesus wasn't enough, right? Grace wasn't sufficient. In other words, they had to let Moses complete what Jesus had begun and let the law supplement the gospel, which is just crazy, right? And this was huge, and Paul saw this immediately, and he was outraged. This issue, I mean, this issue can be clarified by just a couple questions. First one, it's kind of two. Do practices shape us into God's people, or does God shape us into his people? Again, to the Jewish, ancient Jewish people, practices had done it. But as of the day of Pentecost, everything changed. Everything changed. It was by faith or was it by grace? Was it a mix of law and grace? What was it? So again, it just wasn't some Jewish practices that were at stake here. This was a big deal. And it wasn't only, and I'm going to say this super carefully, it wasn't only about the truth of the gospel. That's what Paul was concerned with. And, and gladly so, because the side issue, the side issue um, had to do with being good neighbors, right? And, and you've heard this phrase, sometimes we can make a, uh, a wrong decision for good reasons. It never, you, you don't ever make bad choices for a good reason. That, that's just, that's, that's not biblical. You only, you know, you, you don't sin in order to do something, something good. Um, and with this, this, this whole thing, um, you know, what Jewish practices are we going to teach? And, and again, do they have any place? Do these old rules now have any place in a faith that's built on faith in Christ, right? Built on grace. It was really, and, it, and again, kind of walk you through this, they weren't being mean to each other. They were actually trying to be neighborly, and by being neighborly, they could very well have messed up everything. Right? They had, to, they had to keep true to God's word while they were trying to be loving. And that's a very difficult thing to do. How do we be true to God's word and yet love that neighbor who you know is doing something that God disagrees with? Right? How, do you, how, do, how, do, how, do you, how do you do that? Um, again, tough question of neighborly concerns. Um, it was all about table fellowship. Saved and spirit-filled or not, the observant Jews who were saved could not sit down 
at the table with the Gentiles because they weren't kosher. So they had now the same faith, but because of one group's heritage and traditions, they couldn't sit down with the new group. It's not that they didn't like them. It's just that their laws that they'd been around for so long had told them that you can't do that. Yes, they're wonderful people now. Yes, God loves them, but you can't eat with them. And I don't know how you feel about people who decide, I don't want to eat with you. That's insulting. Because when we eat together, that's like the highest form of fellowship. And so both groups are like, well, what what are we going to do? What are we going to do? So everybody arrives in Jerusalem. Let's talk this out. Let's, Let's look at this. Again, they weren't passing judgment when they asked about the purity questions, right? They were seriously inquiring, how do we relate to others when purity questions are in in question, right? The apostles and the elders in Jerusalem, they listened to both sides, right? Listened to both sides, kind of got what, what each one was saying. God was blessing the Gentiles, and the Pharisees were concerned about the circumcision. So Peter makes a speech. Then Paul and Barnabas make speeches. We're not going to go into those because we've already looked at what they've been saying. Um, but James makes a third speech, and he announces the decision of the council. Listen to this. This is uh, 15, verses 13 and 14. When they had finished, you know, Peter and then Paul and Barnabas, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon, and it was really, that's Peter, I mean, he's, he's, he's calling him by his Hebrew name, even though Peter had begun to be, you know, use his Greek name because he was being a missionary to Greek-speaking people. But um, James calls him by his Hebrew name, like this, this familiar kind of thing. Um, brothers, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. Now, again, we kind of read that very quickly, and this was huge, right? Israel, Israelites, the Hebrews had been called according to God's name. And now James is saying the Gentiles are now on equal footing with you Jewish people, with you Israelites. There's no more, no more division. Totally equal. Totally equal. James had just put the Gentiles on equal terms with the Jewish people by way of Jesus. They now belong to the true Israel. And that is such a big deal if you were a Jewish person, the the true Israelite. Who was the true Israelite? Now all the Gentiles were true Israelites. Big, 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 big. We have a long-term planning committee. And we've been meeting this spring quite a few times, um, trying to decide the very thing that the Jerusalem Council is trying to decide. You know, what practices unite the two groups and what practices divide the two groups Right? And we need to really look at these practices carefully. If they're divisive, why are they divisive? We really need to get down to it. Is it something theological that's super important that we somehow got to get hold of? Or was it maybe something that we can jettison because it wasn't that big a deal anymore in light of Jesus? It might have been important before, but in light of Jesus, it's not d- that important anymore. Um, and so we're, we're trying to define, you know, what practices unite rather than divide? What, what practices mark us as God's people? Right? What practices are going to shape us into being disciples? So this is what we're wrestling with. Um, you know, how do we be Christ-like disciples? Um, James then went, that was a little side note there, James then went straight to the prophets to close his argument. In 15 and 16, he says this, the words of the prophets are in agreement with this. As it is written, this is the prophet Amos, after this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. So God is promising to rebuild King David's kingdom. And Christians, obviously, we see this as 
fulfilled in Jesus, right? The seed of David, the fulfillment of this prophecy. Additionally, Amos says this, that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name. Right? So, so Peter had already said earlier on, or excuse me, James had already said, you know, God is calling the Gentiles by his name. They're like, wait, 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 that was us. That was us. We're called by his name. Damn, not them. Even the Gentiles who will bear my name. Right? So through the Davidic Christ, Gentiles will now be included in this new community. So James is looking back at the prophet and he's going, looking at Peter, what Peter said and what Barnabas and, and, and uh, Saul said and, and now what Amos said a couple thousand years earlier. And he's like, I conclude. Here we go. Verse 19. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. And again, as I read this passage and this decision of the Jerusalem Council, um, can you hear the love that they have for each other? It wasn't, let's, let's go to it and let's one side win. I mean, they were literally trying to find a middle ground. They were trying to find some common, some common ground. Um, even when the decision was reached, right, the, send, the, the council sends a real strong message by sending um, Paul and Barnabas from one side of the argument, and Judas and Silas from the other side of the argument, they sent them all together side by side to announce the decision to the church at Antioch, right? To tell the church, hey, we're all in this together. We're in total agreement. There's no fight. There's no anything like that, right? We're, 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 we're right there, right there. Um, and James is quick to see that the practices that bind us together can also become litmus tests, right, that keep other people out. He was so quick to see all this. I'm going to keep reading verse 20. It says, instead, we should write to them, telling them four things. Abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from the meat of strangled animals, and from blood. So James asked the Gentiles basically to respect the Jewish conscience in four areas. And interestingly enough, all four of these areas, even by this time, most Gentile cities were already doing these things. Right? If you were a pure person, you didn't involve yourself in sexual immorality, you didn't run around cheating on your wife or your husband, um, you didn't eat blood. That, that was, these were just safety things. So everybody had already been doing these things. And James quickly saw, all right, we'll pick these four because they're not divisive. Everybody's already doing them anyway, but they are very important to the Jews. They're super important to their conscience. Right? James is recognizing the profound, the incredibly profound shaping effect that our practices and habits have on our lives. They don't save us. But they generally, definitely move us in one direction or another, either, either in God's direction or into a selfish direction, right? Our practices, they really do shape us. If they're godly practices, they shape us into God. If they're me practices, well, they shape me into me. And, and, I, and I have a choice in my life. Which practices do I want to participate in? What we practice and we don't practice, they mark us as God's. Mark us as God's own. <laughs> that came out kind of funny. Um, so what role do practices now play? Number one, they do, they mark us, right? Um, Scott Daniels from Napa College Church, he, he tells a story of uh, being in Brooklyn, New York, and he sees a, a Jewish family walking down the street. And, you know, they got the curls and the hats, and they look different. They, they just look different from everybody else. Um, and a conversation ensues between the, the dad that, that, that Scott Daniels overheard, the dad and the kids. And the kid's like, Dad, why do we got to do this? Everybody's staring at us. Why are we so different? And his dad then explained, we're, we're God's chosen people. The way we dress and the way we act, our practices, they mark us and they, they unite us, right? They, they, they mark us as God's people, but they also they have a power to unite us. 
This is, this is what these practices do for us. Um, kind of like a sports team unites us, right? Everyone from different, I mean, you can come from anywhere in the world, and if you like the Seahawks, you're welcomed. I don't care about anything else in your life. In this area, if you wear your Seahawks uniform somewhere, you're loved. You're just loved. I mean, that's all there is to it. You go to San Diego, you're hated. It's just the, that's the way it works. The way it works, right? Um, this faith, these practices that we participate, they, they unite us. Um, one commentator wrote that sports is a great relief valve in times of stress because we go and we scream and we yell and, uh, uh, about something that means nothing, right? So that when we go back home and have discussions about things that mean something, we've got all of the vial all out of ourselves and we're like, okay, I can discuss this, right? I can discuss this intelligently now. Um, one of the key practices that Jesus instituted, right, fulfills this need that unites us all around the world on Sundays. We all know what happens. People share communion. This is a practice that unites the entire world, one single practice. Um, the Nazarene Church, we go to great lengths to assure this, this unity of the Spirit, right? We tell you, right, ha have, we have unity in the essentials, but we have freedom in non-essentials. The Nazarene Church took a very, very hard stance on this. We will not have a bunch of rules that divide us. We will focus on the rules that unite us. I love the Nazarene Church for that. Um, and the added benefit of common practices is that these practices that we unite under, they glorify God. Right? John kept saying that. You know, you'll be known by the way you love each other, by your practices that you practice towards one another. That's the way people will know your mind. There's, there's a unity there, and it, and it glorifies God. Um, the signs and wonders, those are our loving acts. Those are signs and wonders. And the signs and wonders we find out in God's Word, they point to something, right? They, they just don't hang out there, oh, look, that was amazing. Signs and wonders, they point to Jesus. And so our practices, we've got to ask, what practices that we participate in, which ones point to Jesus? Which ones point to Jesus? And the last thing, our words are supplemented. When we glorify God, when we're marked, and when we're united, our words are supplemented. Our witness to the world is more about just our words, right? They've got to be supplemented with actions. When we back up our words with actions, right, they supplement what we say. They authenticate. You know, it's true. They validate, right? It works. Um, demonstrates, here's what it looks like, our verbal witness. So what we do matters. It can't just be what we say. Because talk is cheap, and we all know this. Talk is cheap, so God paid the ultimate price, right? We had a guy, Gary Busey. How I many of you guys, you've heard of Gary Busey? He came to our church in Fairfield, and the weirdest thing happened. He was nuts. I'll just tell you right now. He was off the charts. Theologically, you name it. And what was weird is, I think I told you this before, but we had more people come to Christ that day than we had ever had before, and it was the strangest thing. He spoke zero truth. <laughs> he didn't. I don't think he said one true thing, biblically speaking. But we got the impression later on as we sat around and talked about it that this guy, people identified with him, right? They looked at him and said, Gary knows where we came from. Jerry, Pastor Jerry and Pastor John, they don't have a clue. Look at them. They, they're privileged. They, 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 don't, they, don't, they don't know where we've been. But Gary, he knows, Right? That's, that says something to us. How we act, the things that we do make an impact on people, right? It's like the incarnation. People had a certain idea about what God was like, and then Jesus showed up, 
Well, people had a certain idea about what God was like, and then Gary showed up. And people were just like, oh, God's awesome. God understands me. He understands why I did that stupid thing. He gets me. I, and I'll say this very carefully, Bible study, prayer, huge, huge, the beginning of everything. But Bible study and prayer have no hands and feet. I mean, you guys recognize that, right? And I'm saying that very, very carefully. They got no hands and feet. They're the start of what our hands and feet then do. John Wesley talked a lot about inward holiness, outward holiness, personal piety, social piety. He said, whatever religion can be concealed is not Christianity. And I'll tell you right now, the Catholic Church, the Anglican Church, I think they were onto something because, uh, uh, honestly, I can walk around town and, and I can live my life and nobody will know that I'm a Christian. I can totally hide if I don't do anything. But if I start doing loving things, then people are going to start asking me questions. But I don't got a collar. I don't, I don't got anything that identifies me. I can totally hide. John Wesley is saying we, we all, we can hide unless we start doing loving things and then we're, our cover's blown, right? Then, then people are going to start asking, well, why are you doing that? Because that's not very normal. Nobody gives 10% of their income. <laughs> that, that's nuts. No, not really because we love Jesus. He says this. I'm going to read the whole quote. John Wesley, so impossible it is to keep our religion from being seen unless we cast it away. So vain is the thought of hiding the light unless by putting it out. Sure it is that a secret, unobserved religion cannot be the religion of Jesus Christ. Whatever religion can be concealed is not Christianity. Christian filmmaker Brian, big long last name, Ivy says, Christians are losing the relevancy battle in modern day society for not speaking to both the physical and the spiritual needs of their people. The church is only speaking to the spiritual He's saying as soon as the church starts speaking to the physical needs of people, irrelevance will go away. We will become relevant. We will be at the top of every person's list to call when they have needs. And if our practices are the visible signs and wonders, and if they play such a key role in shaping us, I just want to close there with this idea here of what practices... And this is what the long-term planning committee is wrestling with right now, so I would ask that you pray. They've been presented to the board. The board is wrestling with them now. Which practices best shape us, mark us, and unite us and provide the most compelling and visible witness? Right there, this, what we do has to do this. Mark us, unite us, shape us, and supplement our verbal witness. What, what are we doing as a church? And this, again, I'm going to leave you with this idea. You know, what practices speak louder and clearest to the lost? Which practices build better disciples rather than practices that build bigger churches? Which practices are kingdom-wide rather than merely church-wide? Which practices are cruciform, right? Which practices are cross-shaped? And this is crucial because, again, our witness is more than words, right? It's about the practices that divine define our ultimate loyalty to Christ, to each other, and the people out in Richland. Our practices matter. So I just want to ask you to pray for this long-term planning committee, pray for the board, that we're really, really coming to head with, with 
what will we, what practices will we ask you all to begin to participate in that will mark us, unite us, shape us, and make our words really loud? Y'all bow your heads. Father, thank you so much for Acts chapter 15. Just the incredible tenderness in which they treated each other, in which they, they wrote down their words, in which they, they spoke to one another. Um, it was never, ever about them and us. It was always, how can it all be us? Um, Father, that we could somehow capture that spirit of that council in Jerusalem, um, that, that we would just find this common ground, these practices that would unite us that we could all fall in behind and, and know that they're biblical and know that, Holy Spirit, that you want to work through these practices. So, Father, give us courage, give us strength, give us insights and guidance into what, what do we do? What do we do to tell the world about you? Fill us with your Holy Spirit because we're not going to arrive at this answer without it. Father, thank you. Thank you, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Jesus. In your name I pray. Amen.